This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 16 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I interview genomics experts who are shaping our understanding of science and nature. Encephalitis is an inflammation of the brain. It's a serious illness that affects over 4 million people and causes 150,000 deaths worldwide. Although viral infection is the most common cause of encephalitis, it can also be caused by bacteria, fungi, or parasites. The cause of encephalitis is typically determined by testing a patient's cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, the colorless liquid that surrounds the brain and spinal cord. But according to a review by Kennedy and colleagues, published last year in the journal Viruses, about half of encephalitis cases are unexplained. The authors state that this is due to the failure of conventional laboratory techniques to detect an infectious agent. Encephalitis and neuroinflammation can also be caused by autoimmune factors. Here, the immune system mounts a response against our body's own cells and tissues, leading to inflammation. The treatment for autoimmune encephalitis is immune suppression with steroids. But immune suppression in someone with an active infection is a really bad idea. So correctly identifying the cause of encephalitis or meningitis is critically important. Today I'm talking with Dr. Michael R. Wilson, professor of neurology at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. Michael is a neurologist specializing in infectious and autoimmune diseases of the brain and spinal cord. His laboratory applies cutting-edge next-generation sequencing, or NGS, techniques to enhance our understanding of autoimmune and infectious causes of meningitis and encephalitis. Michael began our interview by explaining why he got involved in NGS. Yeah, so I'm, I am a neurologist, and I have a special clinical focus on patients who have inflammatory diseases of the nervous system. And um, many of these patients who have conditions like meningitis or encephalitis are never diagnosed. Um, we don't identify a cause of their uh, inflammatory process. So, you know, early in my clinical training, I knew that I, I found these patients very fascinating and wanted to see them clinically. But the idea of treating patients like this for my career and more than half the time having to say, I don't know what's wrong with you was really frustrating to me. That was really the big impetus for me to seek people out who were doing research in this area so I could focus on applying those techniques in neurologic disease. So were there other technologies that you thought about using? I mean, why did you decide on NGS? There really weren't many other options out there. I think there's such a wide range of infectious agents that can cause neurologic disease that you really need, if you're going to make a dent in the undiagnosed rate for these patients, you really need a comprehensive assay that NGS allows you to do to look. Um, there's you know, well over 100, 200 organisms that can cause encephalitis and meningitis. And, wow. And, um, you know, ranging from many fungi to parasites, viruses, and bacteria. So there was an advance, you know, in the 90s when different viral PCRs came out, you know, for mostly for herpes viruses. You know, that's helped, you know, make those diagnoses much easier um, in spinal fluid. But, 
you can only do so many individual pathogen specific PCRs on, you know, a small volume of spinal fluid before one, it gets too expensive Two, you run out of fluid to test and three, you know, it just, it just gets unwieldy to try and track the results from hundreds of different tests. In a 2017 article published in the American Journal of Transplantation, Michael wrote, quote, candidate-based infectious disease diagnostics already failed to identify a causative pathogen in approximately 50% of encephalitis cases. I asked Michael why the current diagnostic tests miss so many cases. There's a couple main reasons. So one is just that Again, there's just such a huge number of organisms that you know, typically when someone has encephalitis, the treating physicians will interview the patient if they're able to talk um, or the family and just get a sense of their story. Where have they traveled recently? What's their occupation? What exposures might they have? You know, did they mm-hmm. just go camping and get a tick bite? And based on kind of that whole picture and then the general laboratory testing, they'll They'll make a guess and say, based on the age and everything here, I think that, you know, these five organisms are the most likely, and they'll send off the test for those five bugs. And if those come back negative, they'll expand the list, but the list rarely gets beyond 10, 15 organisms. So I think that's one limitation is just that you're really only querying a small chunk of the universe of possible infections someone might have with these candidate-specific tests where each test test for one pathogen. The other tricky thing is, is that most patients who have encephalitis, that's an infection or inflammation in the brain itself. And spinal fluid is not the brain. Um, So when we sample spinal fluid, we're hoping that some of that organism will get shed into the spinal fluid. So it's just, it's a hard tissue type to work with in general. And then the third thing is 50% of cases are undiagnosed and we're learning that in addition to finding infections that weren't previously recognized, we're also learning that some of these cases are not infectious. Autoimmune encephalitis occurs when the immune system makes antibodies against brain cells or tissues. Michael explained that the symptoms of autoimmune encephalitis and infectious encephalitis can be identical. There's kind of a similar revolution going on right now, discovering new autoimmune causes of brain inflammation that previously have been uh, lumped in with, you know, likely infectious. The most famous recent syndrome is patients who have autoantibodies against the NMDA receptor. Mm -hmm. And that, that autoimmune syndrome was just identified 10 years ago now. Previous to that, all those patients were lumped in as having a likely viral encephalitis. So since 07, there's been a number of other new autoimmune syndromes identified. So um, that's really, it's exciting. Um, And it's particularly exciting because like the NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis is quite treatable. Although autoimmune encephalitis and infectious encephalitis present with similar symptoms, the treatment for each is very different. Infectious encephalitis patients are treated with antimicrobials that target the infectious organism, and they need to have an effective immune system. On the other hand, autoimmune encephalitis is treated with steroids to suppress the immune system. This dichotomy requires understanding of the causes of neuroinflammation. The wrench that it's thrown into all this is that the way you treat that and the other autoimmune syndromes is to 
deeply suppress the immune system. And so if you have missed an infection and you're treating for a presumed autoimmune condition, then you can really hurt somebody. For sure. Um, so there's a lot of this debate that goes on daily in, in IC, with ICU patients where they're very sick and the clinical team debates each day, you know, is today the day to start steroids for a possible autoimmune condition because the 30 or 20 infectious tests we've sent off have all come back negative. Wow. So may, maybe there's an autoantibody that's at play here. And should we, should we try to treat? And, you know, that debate happens on a daily basis. Um, and sometimes people will say, no, let's wait another day. Let's wait for the 21st infectious test to come back before we pull the trigger. Because people can have a really miraculous response to steroids if it is one of these autoimmune conditions. So right. it's kind of raised the stakes and the, the need to get clarity quickly in these patients. It sounds like a really tough clinical problem to have because if you don't know all of the microbes that are present and you don't know all of the autoimmune factors, it can be really impossible to tell which, which it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think NGS, it's exciting both as a way to comprehensively screen for uh, any infectious organism, but you know we're also interested too um, when we do uh, RNA seq on the on the spinal fluid of these cases, we look at the you know non-human sequences to find uh, organisms, but we also are at the same time collecting a lot of human RNA seq data, and we'd love you know another really active research project is to come up with a a host gene expression signature that helps discriminate between people who have an infectious encephalitis and people who have a non-infectious encephalitis. So even if you don't know the particular bug or the particular antibody, you can at least say it's a really good idea to try steroids in this person or it's a really bad idea. And that would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, you would think in 2017, we could put people in the right broad category, like it's <laughs> autoimmune, it's infectious, but we, we don't do a great job of that. Michael and I discuss the kinds of technical challenges he faces in his research. A key challenge comes from working with a sample like CSF. In a brain infection, very little of the infectious organism's genetic material actually makes its way into CSF. So there isn't a lot of genetic material with which to identify an infectious organism by NGS. Moreover, Michael explained how the low level of background genetic material that comes from skin and lab reagents can also obscure the low-level detection of infectious agents. We've had a number of, you know, viral encephalitis cases in which we that we've identified by NGS, and you know, we'll be lucky if we get, you know, four, ten sequences out of twenty million. Um, really? So yeah, so it's, you know, it gives you the chills sometimes to <laughs> think like if we'd sequence just a little less deeply, <laughs> you'd miss uh, it yeah, we'd miss it entirely. So. Um, whereas, you know, my colleagues that, you know, work with respiratory samples, if someone's, you know, if they're working with bronchoalveolar lavage fluid and someone's got a viral pneumonia, 50, 60% of all the sequence reads that they get out are to, you know, that virus. Wow. Um, whereas in our case, you know, even in someone who has a raging infection, you know, it's a big deal if 1% of the reads are to that pathogen. So wow. it's it's a pretty pretty low level detection. But is, but is it true then if you if you have such a low level of detection, if you find something in CSF, are you fairly confident that that's the the infectious agent? 
Yeah, I think with caveats. <laughs> you know, I think for viruses, yes. Um, assuming it's not kind of a plant virus or right, something right. that you can see from reagents, but um, for viruses, very frequently for parasites. I think where where it gets more challenging is bacteria and to some degree fungi, just because those are part of the background mix. And some of the background contaminants in those groups of organisms are potentially pathogenic. So we see, for example, many of our samples have pseudomonas uh, reads. Pseudomonas can be a really nasty infection and it can cause meningitis. And so, you know, if someone had a pseudomonal meningitis, that could be, you know, you'd have to do some some more work to to really nail that down yeah. with sequencing. But we've, you know, we've been working on that. You know, we put out a paper on bioarchives a couple of weeks ago. I saw uh, that paper. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, yeah, where we've been, you know, we've sequenced a few hundred cases now and we've created kind of a background model looking at just the the organisms that we see in our water controls and in uninfected CSF samples so that now when we filter data from a new case, it, we have a Z-score model to s- prioritize bugs, even if they're low abundant, to say, you know, this is something that should be paid attention to because it's, you know, out of the norm from right. what we see. So you have kind of a reference database exactly. that you can, you can hit. What are some of the, other than sample uh, handling issues, what are some of the biggest technical challenges that you face in this work? You know, we're always in search of library prep kits that can best handle low input nucleic acid. You know, we're always looking for better ways to to deal with that. And then the contamination issue too. I think, you know, one other thing is that why contamination might be a, a bigger part of this is it seems as if essentially if you have no nucleic acid input, then um, whatever little bit of contamination is present in the library prep reagents is going to get you know, way overrepresented in the sure. in the final result. So yeah. those are those are really the big big challenges. Michael's biggest motivation is in working with individual patients, especially those that are difficult to diagnose, and to help provide answers for patients and their families. Yeah, I think on a individual patient level, it's that's by far and away the biggest motivator. So we we had a case recently of a. Someone we found a, a rare form of uh, yeast meningitis in, and um, you know, I, she's a patient of mine, and she was referred. She'd been sick for about a year and a half, and without a diagnosis, and so, you know, being able to see her and follow up in clinic and know that now she's getting treated and she has an answer. I think that, you know, those cases don't come along every day, but. Yeah even a few of those keep you going for a long, long time. For so sure. that that's by far and away the most exciting thing. And then the other thing too is when you find a virus or some other pathogen that wasn't known to cause the clinical syndrome that you're seeing, that's really exciting too, just to kind of expand people's knowledge about what's out there and you know, to the extent it could have public health implications. As you know, there have been a lot of really amazing developments in genomics, some amazing developments in the NGS technology. But going forward over five or 10 years, where do you think your field will be? What are the kinds of technological innovations that you think will be will be coming our way? It's exciting. I, I think it's been amazing with just in the, the time, you know, five years working on this stuff that to see how you know, you can generate the data much more rapidly, but then also 
how the cost continues to come down. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm biased, but I sure. think I, I don't see why within a few years um, with automation and with cheaper sequencing, why you wouldn't just turn to this as a first line diagnostic test for any patient with, you know, meningitis and encephalitis. Um, so I, my hope would be that that's going to really replace a lot of these candidate based tests going forward. And this, the stakes are high in the sense that, you know, again, some of these conditions are quite treatable, but you just need to know which way to go. Do you give more, you know, antimicrobials of one sort or another, or do you go, you know, and suppress the immune system? And I, I think that's the other piece of what we're hoping, if we can show that the sensitivity of this test is really good, then the other hope is that a negative NGS result could really help physicians feel more comfortable about starting immune suppression early. Right. You know, instead of saying, oh, we checked. Let's wait a while and do a 21st, yeah, 23rd test. exactly. So, yeah, instead of saying, well, we ruled out 10 organisms, what if you could say we, we really, to the best of our ability, have ruled out hundreds of organisms with a single test, you know, and as a result, be more confident early on about going down the, you know, another treatment route. That's a really hopeful message. I think it's a great, that's a great message. So I just want to thank you for your time, Michael. I think the work you're doing is, is just fantastic. Thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thanks for having me. Wow, I am so impressed by the research Michael is doing. The current pathogen-specific tests fail to identify the causes of encephalitis and meningitis half the time. But NGS may help clarify the situation in some cases. NGS-based approaches have the potential to fundamentally change the way these neuroinflammatory conditions are diagnosed in the future. But that's all for now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Professors Debashish Bhattacharya and Dana Price at Rutgers University in New Jersey. We'll be discussing single-cell genomics of algae and marine biodiversity here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.